Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you look through the teaching of Scripture, I think of Matthew chapter 13, parable of the soils, what you find is at least three types of people when there is a Christian gathering. What you have in those three types of people are the nominal people. They are Christian in name only. Uh, These are not born of the Spirit of God. They are not regenerate. They are still lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. But they've gone through the motions. They are members of a congregation. Uh, They have been baptized, catechized, confirmed. They're members of the church. They, They go through the rites of the church. They... They take the sacraments of the church, but they are not born of the Spirit of God. There's another type of people that are in the church when there is a gathering of the people of God. And and those are true believers, but they're infantile. They are those that you would say follow Jesus at a distance. They're not zealous about their Christian faith. They're often closed-mouthed when it comes to evangelizing or saying anything about Jesus. They're fearful. They don't stand up with great courage and proclaim the name of Jesus. They're afraid of the faces of men. And so they are believers, but they are distant, as it were, from Christ. And because of that, they're not as zealous as they ought to be. They're immature. The third type, I think, that you find here with David are those that follow hard after the Lord. They desire fellowship with God no matter where they're at or what they're doing. They have a heart's longing for the things of God. Now, this is not a perfect life. There is no practical perfection in the Christian life. Do you understand that? There is no practical perfection. We all sin in many ways. There is corruption that remains in the life of the believer. Now, it's covered by the righteous robes of Christ, and therefore we are not condemned. But, beloved, we do not keep the commandments of God as we ought. God commands perfection. We do not have that, practically speaking. And that's the struggle of the Christian life. That's the struggle, I think, that Paul is revealing in Romans 7. Desiring to please God, but even that desire is not perfected. And oftentimes not doing what I desire to do and doing other things that I ought not to be doing. And then struggling. And I think Paul's struggle there is that he's unable in this fallen world with the remaining corruption to truly love God as he truly desires in the inward man, in the new self. Every true believer goes through that. Every true believer struggles with the weaknesses in life. Every true believer struggles with temptations. Things that will draw us away at one time in life and not in other times of life. But they draw us away. There is that constant difficulty in the life of the believer. But nevertheless, through all of that, he continues to desire fellowship and worship of God. Uh, David, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said, let's go worship. Let's go honor the Lord. So this is the Christian life and this is the difficulty that we have to go through. But yet it's one who is desiring more and more to be in union and fellowship with God, to be in worship of the true and living God. Is that your desire? 
Do you choose the things of the world over the things of Christ? If you have the things of the world and the things of Christ, what is most prominent in your life? What is that which dominates in your life? Is it the things of the world or the things of Christ? Be honest, because this is what we're lacking, I think, today in the Christian church. I think we're lacking a real healthy, God-centered devotion of reality. Because when you're real in Scripture, you find that warts and all are painted, don't you? When you find the reality, it's to struggle. We act like we don't go through struggles. The church today acts like it floats on water. You just kind of, just kind of, you know, you were gelling. You just kind of came in here without even touching the floor. Because you don't have any problems. You know, that's lie. That's phony. That is not biblical Christianity. You don't find any of that type of mentality in Scripture. You find troubles and problems and heartache and difficulty and grieving. Yes, you find joy. Yes, you find exhilaration. Yes, you find sweet fellowship. But you find these other things as well. And the church today doesn't want to really confess that. It wants to put on the facade and wants everybody to think that I have no problems. Well, that's, that's a lie. That's phony. You've got a lot of problems. And if you don't have anything outwardly that you're working on right now, let's, let's just talk about your mind. Tell me you don't have a problem with your mind, with your thoughts. You may not say it, but you've thought it. And if you say, I haven't thought it, well then, let me just be clear, you're lying. You're just straight up, outright lying. You are deceiving yourself. Because there is none perfect on this earth. The perfect one is Jesus. We are headed to perfection. But as the Catechism says, perfection comes after this life, not in this life. In this life is much turmoil and heartache. It's what you find in David's life here. Notice the title, uh, the intro, as it were, to Psalm of David. Now, what is a psalm? A psalm is a, is a melody. It's something that put to tune. And many times it's a prayer. It doesn't have to be a prayer, but many times there are prayers. But it's coming out of a heart of prayer, isn't it? A prayerful heart exudes these particular words and that are set to tune so that all of the church can take benefit of this. I mean, I, I, I benefit greatly from the Psalms. And I will say that I benefit more in the Psalms in the last three years than I have at any previous time in my Christian life. And I'm not saying that I didn't benefit before. I'm saying this, that I feel like I benefit much more now and I can relate to a lot of what's going on in the Psalms. And so that's what you have in the Psalm of David. And I, I think especially David's Psalms. Because I equate myself in the sinful aspect more with David than with any other in the Psalms. I can relate to David. David is honest. He's forthright. David speaks reality. And you know, it's the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But you realize also, David is speaking organically. He's speaking from the things of his own heart and his own experiences. 
Yes, it is the Word of God. But David is not just a puppet. He's not some kind of a secretary. He's not just some amanuensis that has no feelings or emotions or experiences. David is writing out of the midst of this. And what he is writing is God's Word. So, David is in trouble. Here he is once more in trouble, and he's writing out of this experience of trouble. Notice the Psalm of David, and he's written about 75 or 80 of the Psalms. He didn't write all the Psalms, but he wrote about 75 or 80 of them. And this Psalm was written, notice, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. <clears throat> all right, so that narrows it down. Because searching 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you'll only find two occasions where David is in the wilderness in Judah. And the two occasions are when he was being chased by Saul and when he was being pursued by Absalom, his son. Alright, so you have those two. But we can narrow it down and know exactly when the setting was. How do you know? Well, look at verse 11. This is what he, he writes. But the king shall rejoice in God. David is king at this time. So you know it can't be the first occasion when he is being chased by Saul. It's the second occasion when he is being pursued by his son Absalom. Absalom gave lots of heartache to David. But this was prophesied. It's exactly what the Lord told David. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the Lord told him, the sword would never depart from your house. You will always have the problems and contention in your life. And David did. So you have now there's Absalom kills one of his brothers, Amnon, for raping his sister, Tamar. And because of that, David did not put Absalom to death which would eliminate a lot of his heartache, but he didn't. He banished him to the city of Hebron. So Absalom is in Hebron for four years. And as it is, as time goes on, he doesn't get better, he gets bitter. He becomes more and more angry, thinking, I have been mistreated, being banished by my father from my homeland, from being in Jerusalem. In his mind, I should be next on the throne. What am I doing in Hebron? So, what he began to do is basically started a coup. How did he do that? Is he, he gathered up people and he said, if you really, he, he entreated himself to people. If you really want justice, you really wanted to be treated fairly, come to me. Because you can see my father David is too busy for that. He doesn't have time for you, right? Absalom is really coming across as, I'm a people person. I'm, I'm one of you. I'm one of the, uh, the gang, you know. And you can trust me. You can come to me. So that's what he does. He begins rallying people around him. And as he begins to do this, he finds that he's getting stronger and stronger. And then he's got in his mind now, I'm going to lay siege upon Jerusalem and I'm going to take over the throne. So, David at this time hears about it. Absalom is a lot closer than David thought he was. And here is the marvelous providence of God. 
This is where you see an extraordinary providence of God. That the, the back side is the tapestry is pulled so you can see the front side. So what happens is some of the counselors of Absalom say, strike David right now. David, in hearing this news, was caught off guard. He was off balance, as it were. Now, you know when you're off balance, it's easy to push somebody over. When somebody is losing their footing, just one little shove can push them down. And this is what some of the counselors said. They said, let's strike him now while he's off balance. Let's take him now while we have this opportunity to strike. But God put it in the heart of Ahithophel to give another advice to David or to uh, Absalom. And Absalom heeded that advice. And that was, no, let's wait. Let's wait and regroup because you know your dad. He is a lion of a man. He is a warrior. And those that are around him are seasoned veteran warriors. And if we lay siege upon them now, their rage will come forth and we will be completely destroyed. So let's not strike now. And in God's extraordinary providence, they had time then to escape Jerusalem lest they be besieged and they starve. And that's what would have happened. They would have starved them out. But it doesn't do that. So he flees. And he flees being pursued then by his son. And the Lord gave great victory when the battle ensued where 20,000 of Absalom's men were killed. Notice that he rallied together 20,000 men. Probably more than that, but at least 20,000 were killed that day. And Absalom was one among them. David in the midst of that writes this psalm. What would you write? We write things. I like to write. I like to write and express things going on in my heart. I like to write them out theologically. Some of you have diaries. And you like to keep a diary. We call it today journaling. People like to journal what you were doing, what you were going through, how you were feeling, your thoughts at the particular time, this happened, that happened. What would you do if you're being pursued by your son? What would you do if you have to leave your home and your city? Because if you don't, uh, the lives of those that are in the home, that remaining within the home, are going to be at jeopardy. What would your thought be? This is David's thoughts. David begins writing, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth, his thought, his mind, is captive, is God. I dare say, beloved, that today, we're so therapeutic today, that it wouldn't be God. I think the writing today would be man. Oh, so-and-so. Oh, dear doctor, so-and-so. It wouldn't be God. That's a shame, isn't it? Isn't it a shame how we live today as the Christian church? As those who have the fullness of God's revelation? I mean, I, I'm often ashamed of myself. 
The church ought to be ashamed. I, I hear too much of the therapeutic. With even a, a day of behavioral modification. Rather than coming to the Lord. You know, what does Paul say about fighting anxiety? He says in this way, to take it to the Lord in prayer. Philippians 4. With thanksgiving and supplication, make our request known unto Him. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How often, beloved, do we not first come to God? Is it not the first out of our mouth, Oh Lord! But it's something else. Not, not with David. What an example here. And David is under duress. He's under stress. He's under an anxious mind. And yet he comes to God. Oh God, you are my God. I'm not one worshiping a false God, some false image. I'm not my own God. I'm not trusting in myself. You are Elohim. You are the strong God, the mighty God. You are the God of all gods. You are the one who upholds all things with your strong power, with your mighty arm. You, you alone are my God. It's you that I trust. That's what David is demonstrating, isn't it? When he first begins with God, he is demonstrating a heart of trust, even in the midst of turmoil in his life. David declares that God is his God, and he says, early will I seek you. Now, the word early there, um, it, it can mean early in the morning. It actually refers to dawn, the dawn of the morning. The commentators have talked about this particular psalm as being a morning and evening prayers. So morning having to do with seeking God early or in the morning and then later in the evening coming again. It doesn't matter to me. Because our life ought to always be seeking the Lord morning and evening. We are to be seekers of God. That's what a Christian is. We are the ones who seek the Lord. No man in his fallen, unregenerate, corrupt state seeks after God. It is the believer, the one who is born of the Spirit of God, the one who is regenerate, the one who has true faith, engrafted into Jesus Christ. He is a seeker after God. That is all our life long. That is our business, to seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, knowing that all the other things will be added unto us. David says early, at the break of dawn, is when I am seeking you. That means David got up early. I mean, David had a mind and a mentality that the first thing that I do in the morning is I hit the knees. I began praying. I began expressing my love, my joy for my God. My need for my God. Is that what you do? Could this be said of us that early we seek you? Or is it too often, you get up, you turn the TV on, turn the tube on, get the newspaper, go through all those gyrations of the day, and then decide at some other point, ah, you know, I'm pretty tired. Maybe I'll do my reading of Scripture and meeting with God some other time during the day. After all, it's not sin to do that. No, it's not. But you know what happens? You don't ever get around to doing it. Because life has a way of getting busy. And you're not able to get back. How many of you have started college 
And then you decided, I'm going to get me a job first and work a year or so, and then I'm going to go back. And you know, you never do. Because you get busy in life, and it's hard to go back and do those things. Life has a way of trapping you in things. And so, beloved, for us, intentionality. You have got to be intentional in your life of prayer. I've talked to lots of you about prayer and praying and prayer times and what to pray for and when to pray and how to pray. we've, We've dialogued a lot about that. And here it is, the problem, the sole problem is intentionality. Of being intentional. That you get up in the morning, that I have an intent, that I am going to meet with the Lord. You do that with so many other things. I see, I see some of you driving around town, you got your game face on because you've got an appointment at the Legion. I've got an appointment at the dentist. I'm going to the doctor. Your intentionality. What is that saying? You'd be talking to somebody at the post office. I got to go. I, I can't be late. You're intentional. But again, sadly, when it comes to the things of the Lord, how slothful are we? There's no intentionality. It's laissez-faire. Well, you know, if I get around to it. Now with David. David here demonstrates the intent of early at the dawn of meeting with the Lord. Who does that remind you of? That was Jesus, all night in prayer. Jesus was intentional in his life of prayer. He's demonstrating, you see this exactly reflected in the life of Christ. That's how we need to be early that I need to seek the Lord. First thing in the morning, I need to cast my prayers to the Lord. All my cares and my concerns and worries. Martin Luther was a man, they said he prayed three hours a day. Three hours a day. And then you have those who said, you know, you have so much to do, how can you pray three hours a day? And Exactly. That's why I pray three hours a day, because I have so much to do. He's finding his strength in the Lord. David seeks the Lord early. Notice the condition of David's soul. He says, my soul thirsts for you. Again, a a, a question of reflection. Is that us? Is that us? Does our soul thirst for God? He says, my flesh longs for you. I'm not talking about the sinful aspect of man. He's talking about heart and soul, body. David has a desire for God. He has a desire, body and soul, to give of God, to worship God, to gather to God. David says, my soul thirsts. Have you ever, how thirsty have you ever been? He is here in a dry and thirsty land, a desert. And, you know, where he's at in Judah, Palestine, the Palestinian area, the desert over there. I mean, it's one of the hottest and driest areas on this earth. What would you give for water at that time? How much would water be worth to you? If you physically were famished, and this is what he's relating, like a physical body. He's not physically thirsty, but he is using an equation, a metaphor, as it were. He's speaking about his physical body 
but he's referring to his spiritual soul. Even as my body is thirsting in a desert, so my soul is famished right now. This is how I thirst and pant for God. That's Psalm 42. My soul panting for the Lord. As a deer pants for the water, so pants my soul after thee, O God, the sons of Korah. How thirsty have you ever been? I can remember as a kid once being out in a field and uh, it was hot and it was dry and walking for miles with a friend of mine. And if you've ever gotten the cotton mouth where you, can't, you, can't even, you don't even have any saliva in your mouth, you would do anything to quench your thirst. Even the field runoff water was good at that time. Well, this is what David is referring to. The dry and thirsty soul uh, where there is no water. It's a desert. David's soul is longing for the Lord. This is what we as the people of God need. Because I don't think today the church of Jesus Christ longs for God this way. We are so caught up in us. We are so caught up in pleasing ourselves. We're so caught up in going and running and doing, we don't have time for the things of the Lord. We're not famished in this way as David was in his soul for God, thirsting and hungering and longing for God, because we are so occupied with the things of this world. When you're so occupied, beloved, with the things of the world, you're not even thinking about the spiritual aspect and the longing going on in your soul. And then you, you just don't even think about the fact that why am I constantly desiring more and more? Because the things of earth can never satisfy the longing in your soul. You need to teach that to your children early. They'll run after the material things and it will not bring contentment. It cannot bring contentment. Everything wears out and we become more and more discontent with it. What satisfies is the Lord. It's exactly what David is saying. He's not satisfied by much riches. He's not satisfied by being the king, having a kingdom, having a bunch of people. He's not satisfied with that. He's satisfied with God. God is the one who brings satisfaction to the soul. And so, he says, there is no water. Notice verse 2. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary. What is he saying here? I've looked for the Lord in the place of worship, even as my physical body looked for water in a desert land. When you are parched, when you have no water, you only can survive Three days, maybe four, without water. But let me tell you what happens about day two when you don't have any water. You become hallucinating. Your mind begins to think you see things that you don't. You start to get a massive headache. You need the water. You hallucinate. You begin saying things you don't know what you're talking about. You become lost and disoriented. So how do you search then for water? When you know you're coming to the end of your supply and it's necessary. This, beloved, is necessary for survival. You seek like you've never sought before when the supplies 
are low. And you notice what David is saying here. What is necessary for the believer is God. Worshiping God. Serving, honoring, thirsting, hungering. Being a people of God that are serving Him. That's what's necessary. So he was diligent in that search. You would search under every rock. You would look every, under every place that you know that there may have been some water. You say, you know what, I know what I'll do. I'll get up early because getting up early, the dew of the day would be on some of the leaves of some of the, the desert bushes and maybe I could get a few drops from there. Boy, how diligent is a search. And David is saying, that's the way that I seek after the Lord. Oh, that we would seek after the Lord in that way. Oh, that that would be our desire as the church of Jesus Christ. Desiring to see God's power. To see His glory. To see what He does. To see how He performs. Rescuing His people. Providentially moving His arm to protect His people. For He is the Good Shepherd who cares for them. Do we desire to see the power of the Lord? We desire to stand still and see the Lord work. Moses saw that. It's exactly what the Lord said. Stand back and watch the power of the Lord as he decimated the Pharaoh's army. The power of the Lord and God's glory. God's kabod. The reverence of the Lord. The glory of God. We desire to see God glorified. How is God glorified when his word is proclaimed? God is not glorified when we gather together to worship where He is not proclaimed. When it becomes therapeutic. When a guy's talking about his vacation time or family time or all other things except the things of Jesus Christ. God is not glorified. There is no power in that. Power, beloved, comes as the Holy Spirit applies the word of truth to the souls of His people. Regenerating souls, sanctifying souls. There is power, and that is glory as we stand up and gloriously sing to the honor of our God. He is worthy. God is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. The psalmist says that we are to give to the Lord the glory due His holy name. And we should desire that. We should desire. I mean, yesterday at the funeral, I made mention to Maria about this. The singing, it was pathetic. I'm just saying. It was pathetic. And then there's the gathering of the people of God. And how, what a night and day difference where believers come together and rejoice and sing. You know, interesting. Here's an even better example of this. You, you get... Ten guys, you know, members of the church, and you get them together and they're singing. And, you know, they'll, they'll be singing, you know, Almighty Fortress. And you're like, can you sing it? And then you come to a classes or a synod meeting. And you have the ministers and elders get together and start singing. I distinctly remember, maybe 20 years ago, being next to Vern Paloma. My ears popped as he sang. It was so loud. What a difference. That's the glory, isn't it? Singing out the honor of God's name. God is glorified in the worship of his people. That needs to be recovered. You need to be more concerned of your singing to the Lord rather than your neighbor hearing you. 
You need to be more concerned about giving God the praise than what your neighbor might say. David desired to see the power and the glory of God because of your loving kindness is better than life. God's hesed, covenant mercy, His covenant love is better than life. To receive, to experience the power of God's mercy. To know that you are a forgiven soul. What, what is there like on earth compared to that? There is nothing that can compare to knowing that I am a forgiven individual. That I am one who has broken all of the commandments of God. And that of myself I am worthy and deserving of damnation. In the wonder and the power and the glory of God, to hear the words, your sins are forgiven you, you bear them no more. Come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? I and I alone will give you rest. Take my yoke. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You find rest in me. There's nothing that can compare to that. The loving kindness of the Lord is better than life itself. And David is saying, if I don't have the loving kindness of the Lord, then let's end it. Because life isn't worth living. That's why there is so much suicide in our world. Life isn't worth living when you're hopeless. When there is no hope of change, there is no hope of future. God's loving kindness is better than life. And therefore, David says, my lips shall praise you. You know, beloved, if, if we would but focus and think about and reflect upon and meditate upon the mercies of God, it would transform our worship. And I'm not referring to just the singing. It would transform the whole of our worship, corporately and individually. Transforming what we think about our gathering on the Lord's Day. How important would it be to gather as the people of God before the Lord as He walks among the candlesticks ministering to us? How important would that be if we truly were reflective upon the mercy of our God? As I said in Sunday school, 90% of our problem in being thankful to the Lord is that we eclipse the sacrificial work of Christ on our behalf. We don't think about what Christ has done for us. We don't think about the fact that because of the mercy of God, I bear my sins no more. That I wear the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. That I am a child of God. That all the blessings in the heavenly places are mine in Christ Jesus. Why? All because of the sacrificial work of Christ. His active, His passive obedience. That transforms then how I worship Him. It transforms my prayer life. It transforms my reading of His Word. It transforms my desire for His worship. My lips praise you. Hebrews 13, we are to offer the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. We are to be thankful always. We are to be thankful to the Lord. We are to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. Oh, that men would give thanks to the name of the Lord for His wondrous works towards the children of men. Think about the mercies of God. Think about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And watch as you focus upon Christ how that transforms your worship, your singing, 
your attitude, your commitment, your intentionality. And thus I will bless you while I live. And I will lift up my hands to your holy name. This is what David was resolving to do. Where is he now? Being chased by Absalom. Where is he now? He is spiritually, he feels as if he's in a parched land. And he's turning over every rock. He's searching every place, high and low. Why? For the worship of God. He wants it. He needs it. It's better than life. If I don't have that, might as well end it all. So David says, I will lift up my hands to you. This is reverence. Reverence. This is not corporate worship here. This is David speaking individually. Lifting up in honor. Lifting up in glory. Lifting up in dependence. It's a cry of the heart unto the Lord. Lord, help me. Your servant. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I'm sinful. I'm frail. I need you. I need you every hour. I need you in my life. That's the heart cry of the believer. This is not one who is a distance from the Lord. This is not a nominal believer. This is not somebody in name only who is no believer at all. This is one born of the Spirit who is hot after the things of the Lord and without it, they go crazy. They must have the things of God or I die and therefore I seek high and low and continue my search for the blessed God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Shall we pray?